Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3 and verses 22 to 36? John chapter 3 and from verse 22 to 36. We are back to our series in John's Gospel, and we are looking particularly at the theme in John regarding life to the full. And this morning we're considering a subset of that, which is joy. John chapter 3, and from verse 22 to 36, let's hear God's Word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. To him, God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Do please be seated. So here's the, uh, the scene. John is baptizing at uh, Anon. And he's baptizing at Anon because there's a lot of water there. Anon, the word actually means springs. So it's probably a place where there was a lot of water, as John tells us. It was well known for this. There were springs of water. And so it was a natural place for John to baptize people. I might make an application about being baptistic, but I will resist. There was John baptizing people at Anon. Now, Anon was a place, as I said, where there was much water, and so it seems likely that not only was John making use of the waters for baptism there, but it was probably common practice for the Jewish um, believers, the followers of Judaism, to use the same springs of water for their own purification rites. There was a lot of water there, and so it would be natural for these cleansing rituals to be practiced, particularly at Anon. And indeed, one Jew there 
begins to get into a dispute with uh, the followers of John regarding purification rites, that is, regarding cleansing rituals using water. And so they get into this conversation, into this dispute. You you can imagine what it would have been like. Um, Well, you know, I see that uh, your your rabbi is uh, doing a certain kind of baptism, but uh, our rabbis do a different kind of baptism. Let's get into argument about that. It's almost a footnote to like 2,000 years of church history. So there they are in this argument. Uh, Your rabbi is doing this kind of water purification. Our rabbis are doing another kind of water purification. And let's have a really good uh, discussion about that. The word is sometimes, is there translated in some versions, discussion, but it has a sense of dispute, perhaps a sort of sophisticated theological dispute, or maybe more of a sort of uh, barroom, angry conversation. It's not exactly clear, but certainly there were two varying opinions about water and its use in purification that was um, being brought to the Uh, the surface here in the conversation with the disciples of John and uh, this Jewish follower of Judaism at the time. And so they come back to John. And what they come back to John and say is fascinating. Rabbi, this is the first and only time that the disciples of John call him Rabbi. So they have been, as it were, indoctrinated into a Judaistic way of looking at the purification rites, a Judaistic way of looking at these purification rituals, and now they come back to John, and they call him rabbi. He's just another rabbi. He's just another practitioner of purification rites. There's nothing distinct or special about John. He's just another rabbi. Rabbi. See how their mindset has begun to shift through these conversations with this follow Judaism. Rabbi, note what they say. That man who was with you, that man who was with you. Who is that man, followers of John? Jesus. But now, because they've been, as it were, indoctrinated into this sort of uh, religious practice of purification rites, and it doesn't really, you know, there are all these different rabbis, and there are different followers of these different rabbis, and their mindset has been devalued, degraded to a sort of religious common denominator, whereby now John is just a rabbi, and the person he was pointing them to is just that man. That man on the other side of the, uh, of the Jordan, the one you testified about, and they are rather putting a sort of a, uh, drawing a veil over what John said. Of course, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They don't come out and say that. He's just the one you testified about. Well, he is baptizing. He is uh, using purification rites of one kind or another. He is doing ritual cleansing. And, and, and what is more, Rabbi, all the people who used to follow you are now following him. In other words, 
they are jealous. Their sense of what John was about, even more significantly, what their lives were about, had become shaped by these discussions about Jewish purification rites and all the rest, so that now, instead of being pleased that the fulfillment of John's ministry was actually taking place by people following Jesus, they were disappointed by it. Because now their ministry had fewer followers. What could possibly have caused them to have such jealousy? Well, John now, in his reply to them, brings forward a philosophy of life, a theology, really, that defeats their jealousy. And here it is. The foundation of your joy is none other than Christ himself. If you understand that, uh, disciples of John, if you understand that actually it is only Christ who's the foundation of your joy, only He is the one who will give you life to the full. If you understand that in practice and not just in theory, if you get that theology and that philosophy of life, then you will have your jealousy defeated instead of being commiserating that these followers of mine are now going after Jesus, you will actually be celebrating the fact for the foundation of your joy is none other than Christ himself. And to begin with, John therefore teaches them that whatever they have only comes from God anyway. Look at verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven, not one thing. Not a new job, not a Christmas present, not a new pair of jeans, not a sunset, sunrise, full moon, candlelit dinner, intelligence, capabilities, good looks, charisma, charm, not money, not success, not life itself, not one thing. All is a gift of the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, God himself. Now, how differently we tend to think. We tend to think that what we have is because we worked hard for it or because of our natural abilities or because someone gave us an opportunity. But ultimately, says John, the source of all things is a gift from heaven and therefore it is very illogical. It does not make rational sense to be proud of your attainments or to be jealous when you don't attain as you have wanted to attain. Why? Because they're not your attainments. They're your receipts. They are gifts. All you can do is receive them. See, when people become possessive of their ministries or their families, they become jealous of others who seem to do better in life or at work, they have more money than them or they're better looking than them, it is because ultimately they think that these things are their accomplishments, not a gift from heaven. Similarly, when we find ourselves not being motivated to pray, Why would that be? Well, it's because ultimately we think that life's blessings 
can only be our achievements. Why would we pray about them? Because we've got to get them, but John says, no, nothing, nothing, not one thing can come to you unless it comes from heaven, unless God gives it to you. And you say, well, that's all very well in theory, but how can I put that into practice? It comes down to the affections of your heart. It comes down to not simply cognitively believing it, but making the connection between that and, and, and your feelings, the affections, both the thinking and the feeling. And so John, in order to drive home what he's saying into the affections of the hearts of his followers, uses an illustration. And this is from verse 28 to 30. It's the most remarkable illustration. He reminds them that indeed he has said all along that he's not the Christ, verse 28, but this should be no cause for dismay or discouragement. Instead, it should be a foundation of great joy. And the illustration he now uses is that of a wedding. So is the best man at a wedding, the friend of the bridegroom, disappointed that the bridegroom has a celebratory wedding? Would the best man feel disappointed that he's not the focus of attention to his friend's wedding, the, the friend of the bridegroom, in our terms, the best man at the wedding? Would any best man at a wedding feel sad that his friend is happily married? No, of course not. In fact, the more the attention is on the bridegroom and the bride, the more happy are the bridegroom and the bride, the more the best man himself will rejoice. Why? Because the foundation of his joy is not in the best man being the center of attention, not being the one that everyone talks about, but the foundation of his joy is in the bridegroom and the bride having a happy wedding. So the more they have a happy wedding, the more happy would the best man be. For, for a best man to steal the limelight at, at, at his friend's wedding would not only be a great offense to the wedding party, it would also be a great absurdity. It would be absurd. Oh, the wedding is filled with joy because the bride and bridegroom are the center of attention. And to take the focus off them would actually reduce everyone's joy, not increase their joy. I mean, can you imagine? There you are at a wedding and there's some, you know, pastor like me at the front and, you know, he's got his little black book and the, the wedding couple in front of him and he's saying something like this. Uh, John, would you take Jill? And forgive me if there's anyone who's married here who's called John and Jill. We can switch the names around quickly. Jake and June, if you like. John and Jill, Jake and June. John, would you take Jill as your lawfully wedded? And here's the best man. He's sitting on, you know, he's standing to the side and he just jumps into the center of attention. Oh, just a moment. Um, I, I, I just have something I'd like to say. And what I'd like to say is that actually it was me that introduced Jill to John. And so we'll let these two get on with their thing in just a moment, but really this is a celebration about what a wonderful introduction I made. And by the way, once we're through this kind of little marriage thing, the wedding thing, at the back outside the church, I'll be there ready and you can take a selfie with me if you'd like. It would be absurd. How absurd it is that we 
find our joys in anything other than Christ himself. It is as absurd as the best man jumping into the front of the wedding and trying to get the attention of the bridegroom and the bride. Yet we need to school ourselves in this regard because we live in a selfie culture. And a selfie culture is in diametric opposition to developing a sustainable joy. The very thing that is offered so, so, so commonly as a way to find fullness of life, that is making yourself the hero of your own story, that is trying to live out your own dreams and follow your own attainments and be your own success story, that very thing is the thing that is in diametric opposition to the way you have been made and will actually devalue and decrease your joy. And so we hear that and then in church circles we run to the other end of the extreme and we develop a a morose, pseudo-selfless culture that complains that the bride and bridegroom are the center stage and are sulky when they all get the attention because we haven't understood that actually when the bride and bridegroom are at the center of the, of the platform and when Christ is being elevated, that is actually our joy. In some ways, that morose, pseudo-selfless kind of Christianized culture is even more difficult because it's harder to diagnose in our own souls and in the affections of our own hearts. Your joy, best man, is found in not being the focus of attention. (laughs) It is found in the increasing exaltation of Christ. That's what will give you joy. So it is with me, says John the Baptist. He, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must I must decrease. The best man may be in his own life a very important person. Who who could be more important than John the Baptist? Who could have been a greater Christian leader than John the Baptist? And yet he must decrease and Christ must increase. He models for us, therefore, the very central foundational truth that Christ is the foundation of our joy. He may be a very important person. The best man may in his own life be a very significant man, but at the wedding he's nothing. All eyes are on the bride and bridegroom, and it is this very decrease of attention to the best man, an increase of attention to the bride and bridegroom, which must, John says, take place, which gives the best man joy. So if you, if you think of yourself as, as it were, the bride or bridegroom, as kind of the diva, the prima donna, the hero of your own story, If that's the way you think, then your joy will inevitably be as fragile as your own personality is insecure and your own attainments temporary. We have seen so much fragile insecurity in celebrity culture in the recent weeks. And one of the things that it is exposing is the sad 
insecurity of people who spend their lives trying to get more and more attention from more and more people. Why? Because they haven't understood that actually their joy doesn't come from increasing their fame or increasing their celebrity. Their joy comes from worshiping at the feet of Christ. We who follow Jesus must of all people understand this. That if you have Christ as the bridegroom, as the hero of the story of your life, then you will have a firm foundation for great joy. Why is that, you say? Well, let me tell you why that is. Christ will never fade. His glory will never diminish. His love will never tire. His joys will never become tedious. His beauty will never tarnish. And that means that only Christ can be your joy forever. For only Christ can be your joy in a fever of personal rejection. You've been rejected. Who then can be your joy? Only Christ. Only Christ can be your joy in a funk of angry despondency. Why? Because He, Christ, is the foundation of great joy. Not not just some joy, says John, but great joy. Not merely partial joy, says John, but now complete joy. His joy is now complete because the very culmination of what He's been called to do is actually occurring. The very culmination of what we're all called to do. As grandparents, as parents, as children, as students, as professors, as business people, what we are all called to do is to elevate Christ. And the more that happens, the more complete is our joy. So having taught them that whatever they have comes only from God anyway and use an illustration to show them that the foundation of great joy is none other than Christ himself, John finally communicates and celebrates the kind of exuberant message that this foundation of great joy in Christ generates in his own soul and in his own life as a model for us and as a diagnostic too. Are we like this? And isn't isn't it a beautiful thing to be like this? And he does this in verses 31 through 36. Now, some people think think that these last few verses of this chapter are not spoken by John the Baptist, but written by John, the author of the gospel. And indeed, your translation may have quotation marks around these verses indicating they were spoken by John the Baptist, or it may not have quotation marks around these verses. Some Bibles do, some do not. And of course, the reason for that is there were no quotation marks in the original Greek. It does not make any substantial difference to your interpretation whether you think John the Baptist spoke these words or whether you think they were the direct words of John, the author of the gospel. Why? Because either way, they are the word of God. But in my judgment, the passage reads most naturally as if John the Baptist is now delivering to his disciples the culmination of his theology that defeats their jealousy. He's celebrating that and offering it to them so that they can test their own attitudes, their own hearts, their own affections, their own theology, their own philosophy of life against his. 
So great joy, he's saying, is found in none other than Christ himself. And that means that this kind of, this kind of theology, this kind of philosophy of life, this kind of messaging. What, what kind of messaging? Well, verse 31. It means saying and exalting in Christ being above all. And that, that is elevating him, exalting him, worshiping even him, while, even while knowing that outside of the work of the Spirit, no one receives his testimony, verse 32. So then, John's joy, and it should be our joy, is not deflated by the numerical success of our witness, or not success, And that witness is not finally discouraged by whether or not we see quantifiable results. It was not for John. It should not be for us. Why? Because our witness is built upon our joy, and our joy is founded in Christ. And therefore, the way to generate faithful, passionate witness to Christ in all situations, at all times, at all ages, from, from 90 to 9 years old, is to show that Christ is the foundation of joy. Let me ask you this. Why is it that some people, some Christians people, speak about Jesus and others do not? Why is it that some Christians Christians speak of Jesus faithfully, perseveringly, on the mission field, irrespective of their immediate results? Why, Why is it that some churches look out to their neighborhoods in witness to Christ, regardless of the reception accorded to that witness with love and compassion? Why is that? Because Christ is the foundation of their joy. It is therefore a false dichotomy, an untruth, a lie to say that reaching people means degrading awe or worship, exaltation of Christ. No, the more we exalt joyfully Christ, the more we will reach out to people about Christ. Why? Because, well, as the apostles said, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. So there they are in Acts, and they've been commanded by the authorities to stop speaking. Stop it. And what they say is, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Why is that? Because of what they've seen and heard. That is Christ. So their foundation of joy is found in none other than Christ himself. In other words, they keep on speaking not because of having the right technique, but because of having the right theology, having the right affections in their hearts about their theology because of what we have seen and heard, not because we have the latest technique to reach people, but because of who we know and because of what we have experienced, because of what we have seen and heard about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This is the foundation for their faithful witness, the foundation being Christ, which gives them such exuberant joy. Is that you? Do you rejoice in Christ? even when others reject him? Or do you pull back your witness and stay silent depending on what the statistics are in the last year or so about how many people are coming to Christ? If our foundation is really in Christ as our great joy, then we'll, we'll speak of him because he's just so Amazing. Well, says John, then verse 33, we set our seal, that is we confirm and affirm that God is true 
That is, that what God says about Christ is the truth. And so, therefore, we proclaim that the one whom God sent has sent, verse 34, that is, Jesus, speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, my friends, in this one sentence, there is enough truth, enough theology to unite the happy, clappy Christians with the frozen, chosen Christians and the red-letter Bible Christians. You say, that's a miracle. How could you possibly do that? Those people are constantly in disputation about various erudite matters that I do not understand, but I know they live in different churches, and they go to different conferences, and they have different blogs, and they're, they're not at all united in this one verse. There's enough theology to bring them all together. Happy clappy. Frozen chosen, who show their great delight by being even more frozen. And have such deep, deep joy. <laughs> and then the red letter Bible people who are pretty sure that Jesus said the red letter stuff, but not so sure about the other things. In this one verse, here's why. If we love Jesus, we will love God's Word, for Jesus speaks the words of God. Do you love Jesus? If so, you'll love God's Word. And if we love God's Word, we will love the work of the Spirit. You say, you say really? I thought, I thought Bible people were kind of anti Spirit stuff. You know? They're kind of against that, aren't they? If we love God's word, we will love the work of the Spirit. Why? Because Jesus, who speak God, speaks God's word, also gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus, Bible, Spirit. What God has brought together, let man not tear asunder. See, it could be that if you are a Christian this morning, you do not have this kind of foundation of great joy, whatever the storm you're going through, whether people reject Christ or not. It could be that the affections of your heart are off because your theology is off. Perhaps you love Jesus, but you don't love the Bible. Well, let me ask you this question. Where you find words of power when you are distraught if you do not treasure the Word of God, if you do not study the Word of God? Where, when, when you are on your deathbed and your eyes are failing and you need to bring to remembrance a truth that you can hold on to, where will that truth come from if you have not given yourself to the Word of God? Perhaps you love Jesus and you love the Bible, but you're not so sure about the Spirit. The work of the Spirit seems scary to you. You think that if we talk about the Spirit, you might have to take your hands out of your pocket and perhaps you'll have to raise your hand to hear. And if things get really wild to hear, and maybe hear or even touch down. And you resist that. 
You resist, not, not where you put your hands, who cares about that? But you resist the warming affections of God by His Spirit, delving deeply into those hurts from the past, convicting you of sin and calling you to a new task. You resist that. Well, my dear, dear friend, no wonder you are dry. No wonder you are hard. But it is Jesus who gives the Spirit without measure. And by the Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit, part of that fruit being joy. So says John, verse uh, 35, we proclaim the Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. He's exalting in who God is, the unity of God the Father and God the Son. He, he realizes that the foundation of his joy is in God himself. But, but how do you put that together with Christ and the Father? Well, the unity of God the Father and God the Son, not as a faith in two gods, but faith in one God. How, how does that work? Well, bound together by the infinite love of God that is beyond human comprehension, and is an eternal communication of love between Father and Son and Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. So if you struggle to understand the Trinity, let me encourage you to think of love. Love must have an object of love or else it cannot love be. How can God be love in eternity past, before creation, in Himself with no other to love? This is why people who have Unitarian views of God or the Islamic view of God tend to have a view of God as not loving. Why? Because how can God be a God of love when in eternity past there's no one to love? But the Father loves the Son. Always has, always will. And the love that is communicated is, in the revelation that is shown to us in Scripture, the Spirit Himself who perfectly and indeed divinely expresses the love of God the Father and Son. And so this love, this Spirit Himself, not a force, not an energy, Himself, is given to Jesus' followers without measure. So the more you the more you get into this idea that the foundation of your joy is God, the more you're going to, want to, going to want to delve into theology. The more you're going to want to find out more about God. Why? Because that's where your joy is. The more you're going to want to read not just the books in our library and our bookstall that are sort of this thick and have really, really small words. You can read those too. I like to read them as well. But you're also going to read things that are like this and have big words about God because God is your joy. And you're going to want to find out the most complicated things the Bible says about God because He is your joy. 
God the Father loves the Son and the Spirit and the, this eternal communication of love since before time begun, eternal. The more you're going to enjoy that kind of thinking because your affections are drawn to who He is. Is that you? And then says John, of course, this overflows into evangelism, telling other people about Jesus. Offering the good news, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son, will you notice there the way that John puts together belief and obedience as two sides of the same coin. So people who say that belief does not necessarily lead to obedience have misunderstood what belief is. Whoever believes in the Son, you would expect him to say, whoever does not believe the Son. But no, because they're two sides of the same coin, he can say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son, because they're two sides of the same coin. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so we we, we do not hesitate to make clear the eternal consequences of rejecting the Son, the wrath of God, because we know the foundational joy of accepting the Son. Our evangelism, our outreach, our theology does not become politically correct. We don't only preach verse 36a, we also preach verse 36b. We don't give in to a fake news kind of good news. We preach the whole good news, which necessarily means understanding that if you do not believe in the Son, God's wrath remains on you. And your joy in Christ will increase the more you realize what you have been saved from. If you think Jesus saved you merely from a boring life, you'll be as excited in Him as having an exciting new toy or car or something like that. But if you genuinely genuinely realize that Christ has saved you from the wrath of God, your joy will be abounding. Is that you? Well, this is John's theology that defeats jealousy, that becomes then the affections of of the heart that he exposes before us and then asks us to have those same, same affections. The foundation of great joy is none other than Christ himself. For whatever we have is only a gift from God, and just like a best man at a wedding, when Christ is elevated, we experience joy. And therefore we speak of the truth of God in Christ, because Christ is our joy. Let's pray together. First of all, would you take to heart that verse 36 and be sure that you do not leave this building today without faith? Would you now put your trust 
in the Son. Believe Him and not disobey Him. He is the one who has come to offer you life to the full and joy abounding. He has come to rescue you from wrath and hell. Would you not wait any longer? But today, put your trust in Him. Now, put your trust in Him. That joy is mine, and that joy is complete. Would you, uh, at this moment, renew before God your commitment to find no ultimate joy in anything other than Him Himself? Would you bring into His orbit your possessions? your relationships, your thinking, your feeling. Would you try Him in this? He says, he who honors me, I will honor. Would you, would you honor Him as above all? Our Lord, we pray that you'd help us in this, that we might abound in joy and communicate and express that joy in how we live and how we speak, just like John the Baptist did. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.